Welcome. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. We are looking at these stories from some of the ancient kings of Judah, which is the nation of Israel after the Civil War, after the split. It's the southern part of the nation of Israel. And we're asking the questions of what would it look like for us to be more committed to Christ this year than last year? What kind of people would we be if we were following harder after Jesus in 2023 than we were in 2022? And up until now, we've looked at stories from good kings. We've looked at stories from King Hezekiah and King Asa, both of whom were good kings. We're told their hearts followed after God. They didn't do everything right by any, you know, any length. There a lot. We just, even last week, we looked at all the things that went wrong in Asa's life. But they're men who were following hard after God. Today, we're going to look at a bad king. In fact, this is the worst king. This is the guy that scripture holds up as the worst king. And unfortunately, it's Hezekiah's son. It's the son of Hezekiah Manasseh. So follow along with me. I'm going to read 2 Kings chapter 33. I'm going to read down through verse 20, which is the story of Manasseh. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry host and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry host. He sacrificed his children in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinoam, practiced divination and witchcraft, sought omens and consulted mediums and spiritualists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. He took the image he had made and he put it in God's temple, of which God had said to David and to his son Solomon, in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites leave the land I assigned to your ancestors, if only they will be careful to do everything I have commanded them concerning all the laws, decrees, and regulations given through Moses. But Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray, so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the Lord of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Afterward, he rebuilt the outer wall, the city of David, west of the Gion Spring in the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate and encircling the hill of Ophel. He also made it higher. He stationed military commanders in all the fortified cities in Judah. He got rid of the foreign gods and removed the image from the temple of the Lord, as well as all the altars he had built on the temple hill and in Jerusalem, and he threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altars of the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it, and told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. The people, however, continued to sacrifice at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. The other events of Manasseh's reign, including his prayer to his God and the words the seer spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, are written in the annals of the king of Israel. His prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty, as well as all his sins and unfaithfulness, and the sites where he built high places and set up Asherah poles and idols before he humbled himself. All these are written in the records of the seers. Manasseh rested with his ancestors and was buried in, in his palace, and Ammon, his son, succeeded him as king. 
So like Hezekiah and Asa, he becomes king very young, younger than either of them. They were 25 and 20 when they became king. He becomes king when he's 12. Unlike them, he's bad. He is an evil, evil king, we are told. He is not committed to God. One of the commentators I read in, in studying this said, if you sat down and went through the law and the scriptures to figure out what can I do that will most annoy the God of Israel, that will make him the most angry, you would come up with the list of Hezekiah's life. He does everything that God says he despises, including all the way up to sacrificing children in the fire. You want to make God mad? Child sacrifice is a good start. He, he, that really, really angers him. All the things he did it just made God more and more angry. He turned not only himself, we're told, he turned the whole country astray. He turned the whole country away from God. And the, the chronicler, the guy writing Chronicles, well, we don't know for sure who wrote it. Um, he does not mention this, although it kind of comes up later. He doesn't just undo his father Hezekiah's religious reforms. He undoes the political as well. Because if you remember, we, we talked about Hezekiah a couple weeks ago. He's the only guy we know of in history who ever beat the Assyrians, and they didn't come back and conquer the territory later. Anytime the Assyrians ever lost anywhere, they came back in force later and took it over because you don't want to let people beat you. It's bad for the empire business. Judah beats the Assyrians, and they never come back and reconquer it. But part of that appears to be because Manasseh became their vassal again. Hezekiah's dad had been a vassal to Assyria. Hezekiah said, no way, we're not serving this, this ungodly nation. And he rebelled. That's why the Assyrians came after him. God delivered him, destroys the Assyrian army. They leave. Manasseh turns back around and becomes subject to the Assyrians again. And the Bible doesn't tell us that. The Assyrians tell us that. We have their records of when the Assyrian king demanded tribute for to build a palace. And there's Manasseh, king of Judah, sending timber and gold and things. And when he, the king of Assyria launches an invasion against Egypt, there's a listing of the troops that Manasseh sent from Judah to help with the invasion. Manasseh realigns himself with this evil empire. He undoes all his father's political aims, all his father's religious aims. I want to read to you what the writer of Kings says. Second Kings and Second Chronicles are telling some of the same stories, but they give us some different information. The writer of Kings says this, Manasseh shed so much, <clears throat> excuse me, shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end beside the sins that he had caused you to commit so that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Aside from undoing all that his dad had done in standing up to the Assyrians, in getting rid of the false gods, Manasseh is a violent, wicked, evil man. He is called the worst of all the kings in other places in the Bible. If you listen to what the prophets are saying up to the time of Manasseh, so up to, they're not in chronological order, unfortunately, in your books, in the Bibles. You can't just go through them. But Isaiah is preaching in the time of Manasseh, excuse me, in the time of Hezekiah. And what he's saying is, turn back to the Lord. Turn back to the Lord and live in safety. God has given you this land. God has given you all of this. Return to God and keep it. Return to God and live in peace. Up until the time of Manasseh, what the prophets are saying is, return to God and then no disaster will befall you. 
If you look at the prophets after Manasseh, like Jeremiah, who is prophesying in the, the next king after Manasseh and then the next king, the kings after that, what Jeremiah is saying is this city is doomed. There is no possible hope for Jerusalem. It will be destroyed. Why? Because of Manasseh's sin. Because Manasseh was so bad, it must be dealt with. But, Jeremiah says, you don't have to die. But it's no longer turn to God and live here and keep everything you have. It's turn back to God and surrender to the Babylonians because you are going into exile. That can't be stopped. Before Manasseh and after Manasseh, everything changes because he is the worst king ever. And the writer of Kings puts the destruction of Jerusalem at his feet. This is your fault, the writer of Kings says. And so, verse 10, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and, and to the people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. You put a hook in the nose of animals to lead them, because it hurts. It hurts a lot to pull on that. that. That's how you control bulls and things like that. They treated anim Manasseh like a wild animal. They bound him, put a hook in his nose, put a chain on him, and they dragged him off. They didn't even take him to Nineveh, which would have been a much shorter journey. They hauled him all the way up and all the way back down again to, to Babylon, which is a provincial capital at this time. They treat Manasseh as if he was a wild animal, which it kind of seems like he was. He was a horrible, wicked, evil, evil man. And then verse 13 excuse me, verse 12 and 13, in his distress, Manasseh sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by Manasseh's entreaty and listened to his plea. And so the Lord brought Manasseh back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. When this wicked, I mean wicked, evil, violent, murderous man turns to God, and prays. God hears him. God forgives him. God restores him. I don't like this story. It's a very, very uncomfortable story, in my opinion, because it has two very uncomfortable truths that while I like in the abstract, I do not like them in the specifics. If we are followers of God, we understand that these aren't fairy tales. They're, they're not just stories. Nobody made up Second Chronicles and thought, oh, how can I come up with some stories? Let's teach people that forgiveness is good. Let's make a bad king, and, and then he'll turn good, and everyone will be happy. This really happened. Again, we have the Assyrian records of this. This actually happened. This is a real guy. He really was this bad, and when he prayed, God forgave him. Can you imagine? Imagine you live in Manasseh's time. You, 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 your family, you live there in the time of Manasseh. He's the king. Your dad, he has a prosperous business in, in Judah at the time. Let, let's say he's a, he runs a transport company. You know, he, he ships things up and down. What, what would you call that in the age of ox carts and whatever else? It's not trucking, but it, it, it's carting. He's got a successful carting business, right? And Manasseh, and it's profitable. You're, you're, you're well off. Your dad makes a good living. And the king sees that at some point and thinks, 
oh, wow, that's where, there's a ton of money there. I need that. I want that. What does a wicked, evil, murderous man do? Does he go to your dad and, uh, hey, I'd like to buy out your business. That seems like a really profitable thing. And they'll be really helpful for the empire. No, of course not. He has someone bring trumped up charges against him that your dad, while he's moving stuff up and down the country, he's an Egyptian spy. He's sending, he's taking messages for the hated Egyptians. Your dad's a traitor. He has your dad tried and executed. And as punishment for his crime of treason, the king takes all of your assets. And now you are penniless and you are a pariah because your dad's a traitor. It's been publicly put out that. It's all lies. But that's what murderous, evil men do. He filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. He took people who had done no wrong and he slaughtered them because he wanted to. Because he could, because he wanted their stuff, because he didn't like them, because they said something about him he didn't want. It doesn't matter. He is a murderous, evil, evil king. Imagine that that's you. Your family is now penniless. Your mom's a widow. You are shunned because your dad has been publicly branded a traitor, left, right, up, and down, right? I have no idea of what you are doing to live, but it is not good, And somehow, miraculously, Manasseh gets dragged off by the Assyrians, and we don't know how. They, they, the, the Assyrians acknowledge they never conquered Jerusalem. The Bible acknowledges they never conquered Jerusalem. I don't know. Did they call him to a meeting? And then they, something happened that the Assyrians took this wicked, evil man, treated him like a wild animal, and hauled him to the entire other end of the empire. Now, what are you thinking? Because I don't know about you, but I am cheering. Finally justice. Finally, God has heard my pleas. Finally. I mean, it doesn't bring back our dead dad. It doesn't give us back our wealth or our reputation, but at least there is some justice. He's going to suffer too. Just like he made us suffer, now he's going to suffer. And then he comes back because he asked for forgiveness and God said yes. And he's restored back to the kingship. Now, what are you thinking? Because I'm not thinking, oh, what a forgiving God. I am furious. I am angry. This is an evil, evil man. He should not get to humble himself in jail. Of course he's humble. Humble himself in jail. Pray a prayer of repentance and get restored. I will never be restored, what he took from me. Brothers and sisters, if you worship this God, you gotta be okay with the fact that he forgives everyone who asks, always. When I stand up here and say to you, if you're not a Christian, you know, you simply have to acknowledge, just say to Jesus, yes, I believe, I am not kidding. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. This God, God is a God of justice, but only as a last resort, only when he has to. What he wants is reconciliation. 
What he wants is to bring people back. Again, you've heard me say this all the time. Hebrews says, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He didn't think it was a horrible burden that was placed on him by our sin. He thought it was a joy to get us back. The God you worship wants reconciliation. And he will forgive people who have done unspeakable evil to you. He will forgive people that do not deserve it. And he will not require them to somehow make it all up before he offers them forgiveness. He will offer it to them if they ask for it, just like Manasseh did. That's what Paul will say. Paul will say, I was a murderer and a blasphemer. That's why God showed me mercy. So that no one could ever look and say, well, I've, uh, what I've done is too bad. God can never forgive me. Paul says, if God can be merciful to me, he can be merciful to anybody. If God can be merciful to Manasseh, he can and will be merciful to everyone. If you are going to worship this God, you have got to understand and be okay that he's not fair. He's good. And he's not going to be unfair. He's not going to do harm. But he is not going to do the things you want, and he's not going to treat you the way you expect sometimes. Jesus tells a parable about a guy who owns a vineyard, and it's harvest time. So, you know, he needs a few people to run the vineyard to, to keep it up, but at harvest time, you got to get those grapes off, and you got to get them off before they spoil in the sun. So he goes out into the marketplace at 6 a.m., just looking for guys who are unemployed, and he says, hey, I need to harvest grapes. Come into my vineyard, harvest grapes for me. I'll pay you a denarii. Now, that's a good wage. You may have heard that the denarii was the average wage for a day, a day of work. A day's 12 hours. A day of 12-hour work. But really, it's the average wage for skilled labor. Unskilled labor, like you're just hiring guys off the street, that's more like half a denarii a day. So this is a good wage, right? It's kind of the top of what you would expect to get. It's, a, it's generous. He agrees. All these guys come in, they start working. The guy goes back out in the market. He goes out at 9, he goes out at 12, he goes out at 3. And each time when he finds people who aren't working, he's like, hey, come work in my vineyard. I'll pay you what's fair. He doesn't agree on a price. He says, I'll pay you what's fair. And they come in. He goes back out at 5. Right? This is an hour. You're, you quit at 6. 6 to 6. He goes out at 5, finds some guys standing around. He's like, hey, come Come work in my vineyard. I'll pay you what's fair. They come in. They work one hour. In, in the, the sun's going down, the nicest part of the day. Right? And then he calls everyone to pay him, and he pays the last guys first. Those guys that only worked an hour, he gives them a denarii. Oh, and the guys in the back of the line, they are elbowing each other. They're like, did you see that? He's paying them a denarii for one hour of work. Imagine what he's going to pay us. Imagine how much money we're going to make. He pays a denarii an hour. Twelve hours we've worked. They get to the front of the line, big smiles. He hands them one denarii. And they are furious. They are so angry. And the landowner says to him, wait, 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 wait a minute. Isn't this what we agreed? Didn't we both agree that you would work in my vineyard for 12 hours and I would pay you a denarii? I have treated you completely fairly. I have been totally just with you. Take your money and go home. Don't complain. And then he adds this as they're leaving. Or are you just angry because I'm generous? Yeah, we are. Furious sometimes. Because God 
is generous because we work all day for him in the hot sun, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., bent over, pulling grapes. We bust our butt for God. And he takes people that have worked one single hour in the nicest part of the day, and he pays them the same as us. Brothers and sisters, you have got to be okay that you serve a wildly generous God. You serve a God who's looking for excuses to be good and to be kind and to be generous. When you are at the end of the line watching him pay those guys a denarii, like way more than they should ever get for an hour of work, they should get a couple copper coins. They get a full day's wage. You should be elbowing each other saying, do you see that? Do you see what he's doing? I love working for this guy. Oh my gosh. I love working for a boss who pays wildly, who's incredibly generous, because you know there are days when that's us. You know there are days when all you have to give is one hour. You should give 12 in the hot sun bent over. That's what you should do. But you don't have it. All you've got is one hour in the coolest part of the day. That's all you can give. And you get up there knowing that what you deserve is two copper coins, which isn't even enough to buy a sandwich. And what you get is a denarii. You get paid as if you had worked all day. He doesn't blink an eye. He doesn't ask anything of you. He doesn't demand anything. He says, thanks so much for working today. And he hands you a full day's wage. If you are going to serve this God, you have got to understand that he is looking for excuses to be generous, to be kind, to be gracious. And that most days we work 12 hours in the hot sun, bent over, and we get paid at the Nerai, which is a good wage. And then sometimes we don't have it at all. We just don't have it to give. And we still get paid at the Nerai for the day. He doesn't hold back He's not stingy. You worship a God who wants to be good to people, who wants to be generous, who's looking for excuses. And you can go one of two ways. You can do what those guys did in the story, and you can be angry and you can be bitter that he is giving more to other people who don't deserve it, and they don't. Just like he gives more to us some days and we don't deserve it. Or you can be ecstatic that you work for a boss like that, that you know on the days when you don't have it to give, that he is still going to be wildly extravagantly generous with you, just like he was with Manasseh. I am confident. I don't think, I don't think I'm giving anything away if I say no one in this room holds a candle to Manasseh for evil. Okay, if any of you have filled a city with innocent blood, we need to talk soon. I'm confident that hasn't happened. But this guy did. And when he turned and asked, God said yes and brought him back. Boy, that is the first part of this story that galls me. <laughs> you have got to be okay that this is who we worship. And the second part might be worse. It's certainly harder in my opinion. We are trying to become like him. We're trying to be more like Jesus this year than we were last year. We're trying to devote ourselves more like Christ, to be more Christ-like. Then we're going to be more like him. 
And what is he like? He is forgiving. He is extraordinarily forgiving. He is unbelievably forgiving. And brothers and sisters, forgiveness isn't an option for us as Christians. Forgiveness is not something that the scriptures say, oh, you should definitely do this. You'll feel better, which you will. And you definitely should do it. But that's not the way scripture phrases it. Scripture doesn't say, oh, forgiveness is this great psychological life hack that will improve your, your life so much. It says you will forgive because you've been forgiven. It's a command. And we all probably, if you've been in church for a while, you've probably heard the Lord's Prayer, right? The Lord's Prayer ends with, and yours be the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Well, the one we say ends that way. That's not the last thing Jesus said. The last thing Jesus said in the prayer is, if you don't forgive other people when they sin against you, then why do you expect God to forgive you when you sin against him? Forgiveness is not optional. It's not a good idea. It's not something that, yeah, you know, when you get around to it, like, oh, definitely. Forgiveness is a command because he does it. I mean, we see it. This guy has murdered God's people. He has filled God's country with false idols and, and, and altars. He has put up idols in God's temple. In there, it talks about the two courts. That's probably the holy place and the most holy place. The, the place where God and man meet once a year to deal with their sin. He has put up an altar to a false god there. And God forgives him. Because he asks. And that's who we are called to be. We are called to be like him. To be people who forgive. Even though, wow, they don't deserve it. Manasseh does not deserve it. He comes back. He tears down the altars, these other things. Yet, you know what? If you flip over one page in your Bible, um, Manasseh's son only rules for two years. They assassinate him because he's so bad. Manasseh's reforms didn't change anything about his son. His son was still horrible. His grandson comes on, who's a good king. His grandson spends pretty much, I mean, he dies in his early 30s, spends pretty much his entire life tearing down altars. It's not like Manasseh led this great revival that swept through and changed everything. He did something, he tried, but it wasn't fabulous by any stretch. They're still dealing with these issues five years, 10 years, 15, 20, 30 years later. But God forgave him anyway. And that is who he calls us to be, people who forgive. Now let's be clear what forgiveness is and isn't. Forgiveness is not, we pretend like it never happened and there are no consequences. Notice about Manasseh, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Manasseh is restored, but there will be consequences. There is no possible way to stop the destruction of Jerusalem after Manasseh's sin. That's not going to be undone. Let me read you some excerpts from another story. It's from 2 Chronicles chapter 12. It's Asa's grandfather, whose name is Rehoboam, Solomon's son. I told you Solomon, wisest man in the world at the time. Rehoboam, his son, not the wisest man in the world at the time. In three days, breaks the kingdom apart, civil war. Listen to what happens to Rehoboam. After Rehoboam's position as king was established, he became strong, and he and all Israel with him abandoned the law of the Lord. Because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem in the fifth year of King Rehoboam. 
the prophet Shemaiah came to Jeroboam and the leaders of Jerusalem and said to them, this is what the Lord says. You've abandoned me, therefore I abandon you to Shishak. The leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is just. When the Lord saw that they had humbled themselves, this word of the Lord came to Shemaiah. Since they have humbled themselves, I will not destroy them, but I will soon give them deliverance. My wrath will not be poured out on Jerusalem through Shishak. They will, however, become subject to him so that they may learn the difference between serving me and serving the kings of other lands. God forgave them because they asked. It's a four-word prayer. It's only three words in Hebrew. The Lord is just. That's it. That's their, that's their humble. That's their prayer. God forgives them. He's going to restore them. He's going to deliver them. But there's still going to be consequences because of what they did. Forgiveness does not mean there are no consequences. So what does it mean? So the word that the New Testament uses for forgiveness, very common word, about 150 times. Only half the time do we translate it forgive because it literally means to let something go away. You know, I told you the, the language of the New Testament, they love to put little words together. It's the word to let something go and the word for away from. They put those together, let it go away. And it's used all the time. When Jesus calls the disciples, it says they, we translate it, left their nets. But what it says is they, left their, they let their nets go away. They left. When Jesus is there, he's teaching and he's preaching and the crowd wants him to stay. All the time, people want him to stay. And he's always like, no, I got to go somewhere else. I got other places to go. And it says, again, we translate, he, he left the crowd. But literally, it's he, he let the crowd go away. He left. He went somewhere else. That's the word to forgive in the Bible. Let it go. Walk away. Leave it. Now, I don't know what that looks like in any one of your lives. I mean, you're going to have to decide that. Scripture doesn't say. Right? That, that's what it tells us. We need to forgive. That's what Jesus says. If you don't let go, let other people's sins go away. Why do you expect God to let go of your sins? That's what we're called to. To let other people's sins go away. To walk away from them. Because we don't do that, do we? When people sin against them, what do we do? We pick at it. And we pick at it. And we think about it. And we mull it over. And it's in our brain. And we talk to people. And we go on and on and on. And scripture says, let it go. Walk away. Leave. Literally, leave. Just go away. I don't know what that looks like in your situations, but I'm willing to bet that we all need to do that in some different places in our lives. Again, I don't like this passage. It's uncomfortable. And I've had to be uncomfortable in it for a week. So you only have to be uncomfortable in it for half an hour. The God we serve, wow, he is going to be generous to people that he has no right being generous to. He's going to be generous to people that did unspeakable things to us. They are our enemies. They are horrible. They are evil. And he is going to do everything he can to save them. He is going to do everything he can to bring them back. He wants them back just as much as he wants us back. And if we're going to be like him, then we're going to be people who forgive. Again, not people who ignore the consequences, who pretend like, nope, oh, you hurt me, okay, I forgive you, hurt me again. No, 
Somebody borrows money from you, never pays it back. Yes, you must forgive them. No, you don't have to lend to them again. They have proven themselves untrustworthy in that area. Do not help them be more untrustworthy. But we got to let it go. So I'm going to pray for us. Wow. When I tell you read the Bible, I am confident you can do that. Right? I am confident in our own strength, we can carve out 15 minutes a day and read scripture. Like we are capable of that. God has given us that kind of agency. This, to be okay with God being generous to people who have done us terrible harm. Like truly terrible harm. Like that story I told you about the kid and the father. And like Those stories are throughout the Kings and Chronicles of how the wicked kings deal with people when they want something. They take it and they kill the people who had it to make sure that they can never try and take it back. God is going to be generous to everyone he can. And God calls us to be people like that, to, to be like him, to forgive, to send it away. Wow, we cannot do those things. We cannot do that in ourselves. We, we cannot turn in our hearts and think about that and be like, Oh, yeah, okay, I get it, I'll do that. That, that is a work of God's spirit in us. So I'm going to pray for that over us. I'm going to pray for, for God's spirit to be at work in us, to be these kind of people, the, the, the kind of people like a God who can forgive Manasseh, the worst, evilest, wickedest king there was, because he asked, because he humbled himself, because he prayed. So now... You, you pray with me, and you need to agree, right? I can pray this over you, but, but God is not a God who makes people do things. God wants everyone to turn to him, but we know everyone is not turning to him. He will not force you to do this, but he wants you to. He wants you to be these kinds of people. I'm going to pray this over us. If as much as you can, agree with it. As much as you can, say to God, yes, yes, I want to be that kind of person. I'm not. I don't know how to get there. Yes, I want to be like you. I want to be generous and kind. I want to forgive those who have harmed me because you have forgiven me. Not because they deserve it. They don't. Manasseh doesn't deserve forgiveness. I want to be that kind of person. I'm going to pray that over us. As much as you can, agree with that. Give God permission to do that in your lives. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, um, yeah, there's parts of the Bible I really like, and there's parts I'm not as good on. Um, I, I confess, I, I struggle. I struggle that you would forgive a man like Manasseh, a man who has slaughtered. I mean, I, okay, I, I get that it, it, it's poetic license, but filled the streets of Jerusalem with innocent blood is more than just he, he executed one guy. This is an evil, evil man that, that, yeah, we will all meet one day in your kingdom because Jesus, you died for him just like you died for me, just like you died for everyone here that has acknowledged you. And I say amen. You are God and I am not. You are gracious and you are kind and you are good. And wow, people, people think that you are wrathful and angry in the Old Testament. And I, I, I'm with Jonah. You keep being generous in places that I don't want you to be generous. You keep being good to people I don't want you to be good to. Lord, we, 
We want to be like you. We're not. We're not like this. We're, we're, we're not excited about you being generous to people other than us. We're not excited about you paying somebody the same as us when they did less than a tenth of the work. We are not excited about forgiving those who have harmed us. We do not want to let those things go. Lord, help us. Jesus, I know it is your command. Help us to obey. This, you know. Lord, you are human. Scripture says you know how hard this is. You know that we cannot do this on our own strength. We need the power of your spirit in us to forgive, to let these things go, to be glad when you are excited and generous and kind to other people, more so than to us. Jesus, you've got to change us. I pray for me. I pray for my brothers and sisters that we would be these sorts of people because your spirit is at work in us. Lord, you do not need permission for all of us who are yours, but I know that you will not compel us. And so we grant you permission, Holy Spirit, to work these truths in our life. We grant you, Holy Spirit, permission to remind us of these things, to point out when we are not doing this, to change our hearts, to take our, our, our cold stone hearts and give us hearts of flesh. Lord, help us, change us, make us into these people that you have commanded us to be because we cannot do it on our own. We cannot do it on our own, Lord. We pray for you to be at work, to transform us so that we look like you. And we pray it in your name, Jesus, because you are our Lord and because you desire this as well. Amen.